Ladies and gentlemen, mobsters and carpentry enthusiasts, welcome to the Movie Morgue, the Movie Autopsy Podcast. I'm your host, Silvio Emery. And I'm Annie Neller. And today, we're going to be cutting into Antoine Fuqua's 2014 movie, The Equalizer, starring Denzel Washington. So, Annie, you brought us this one. Uh, Tell us a little bit about this movie. Yes, so... um, And tell us why you chose it. Oh, man. Okay, so... uh, my partner and I chose to go see two movies. I think they came out in the same month, actually. And I th- I'm i pretty for sure it was, like, around the February-March time. The two movies were John Wick and The Equalizer, which came out about a week apart. And this movie just, it looked great to me. It was about Denzel Washington being an assassin. And so I was interested. Also, I've watched most of Denzel's... Um, filmic work. I've seen most of Antoine Fuqua's stuff as well. So I was just kind of like along for the ride. And um, we saw it in theaters and we just kind of enjoyed it, even though we were kind of like, yeah, the writing's a little weird. But yeah, so I really enjoyed this. I had a great time watching it initially when I saw it in the theater. And I thought that there was some interesting stuff that you might want to chat with me about because I know you seemed interested. So what is your context for this film? Because I get the feeling that you never saw it before. No, I first saw this about four hours ago. And uh, I had... uh, I'd heard of it. And there was a little bit of discourse about it, uh, particularly because the marketing uh, played up this idea that... And I think it was probably just unclear... And, you uh-huh. know, cultural osmosis and something. But I had the impression that uh, Denzel Washington was, I think, supposed to be autistic in this film. Whereas it's more of an OCD kind of thing. But this idea of him being near you know, average. So I thought that would probably be interesting, but also probably wouldn't be played that well. So I kind of wrote it off for a while. And also John Wick obliterated it from my mind. Oh, yeah. uh, So we were looking for something to fill the week this week. And not to fill the week. I feel that's misleading. But we were looking for something. We didn't have anything specific planned. So we were looking for a movie to do this week. And we were just checking out what was on Netflix. And Annie got really excited about this one. So I did, because like, yeah, it's just kind of like B-action. And B-action movies are just kind of my jam sometimes. So It's really weird, though, because B-action has really changed as far as... I think we'll get to that in discussing yeah. the film. But let's... Uh, so you, you find this generally enjoyable as a film. I think that's your review. Or do you have anything, any nuance f- you want to spin on that? I find it enjoyable... Um, for part of the time, the other part of the time, I'm just kind of like, wow, the writing on this movie was not particularly strong in parts, but also there are bits and pieces of time where I really enjoy the aesthetics of the, the film, particularly we've talked about the tattoo stuff and we'll come back to that in a couple of minutes. So there's, there's bits and pieces of this movie that I really enjoy and there's bits and pieces that I'm just kind of like shrug about. Yeah. And I mean, like, I enjoyed about 70% of this movie. And the problem is that 70% is the first 70%. And then I feel like the final act is just a different movie. It's very boilerplate. It's very standard. So while it was inventive and cool and played things, I think, in a kind of different pace than a lot of these kind of, you know, uh, man on fire, law-abiding citizen, you know, these, you know, uh, the foreigner, you know, these kind of revenge machination kind of movies. Yeah. yeah. 
while I feel like it played very differently, the ending was just kind of really boilerplate standard. Uh, here's, you know, the big action set piece place, and there he's going to fight a bunch of dudes with guns, and, you know, it, it kind of bored me. But the, the first portion of the movie I found to be really enjoying, the cinematography is actually surprisingly excellent. There's a lot of use of mirrors uh, yeah. to convey, it, like, I think it's kind of a divide of conscious and unconscious information almost. Oh, yeah. Uh, we can, we can get into that. Uh, but it's really lovely. Uh, Denzel Washington turns in a great performance. And on the whole, I think it's more good than bad. It's just I kind of wish they had carried that energy through to the end. So slightly oh, disappointing, but still enjoyable. I think this would be a great movie to, you know, sit down on the couch, watch with a beer in hand. That I think yep. it's a great movie for that. But it's not necessarily something I, like, study the cinema of. Oh yeah, even no. though that's exactly what we're doing, so. and that's exactly how I watched it. Like I watched it with like a glass of wine in hand. So yeah, we're watching a lot of movies with wine here, Annie. I don't mean to judge, but do we need to have an intervention? Hashtag grad school. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's uh, get into the weeds a bit. Let's get into actually. Let's let's do the toe tag. Let's just describe this movie for those of us who haven't seen it. Now this is on Netflix, and I guess that won't be the same depending on when you listen to this or where in the world you listen to this from, but for the moment at time of recording in two different territories, it's on Netflix, so it's easy to go and catch. Like For those of you who don't feel the need to go see The Equalizer, let's describe it real fast. Uh, Annie, since this is your movie, let's give you the chance to shine here. Denzel Washington is playing a character from an unspecified super secret agency. He befriends a woman who is a sex worker. She is assaulted by her boss, and this sets Denzel Washington down a path of revenge. That would be the way that I would summarize it. Oh, also, um, best use of power tools in an action movie? I'm going to give it that award. Um, Unless you can think of a better use of a Lowe's in an action movie. mm. I would be hard. Yeah, I'll have to get. I'll have to get back to you on that one. I would be hard because I think there are a couple more action movies that use stuff like this, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. Okay. Anyways, and here's my toe tag. Uh, This is where the Home Alone series gets kind of (laughs) dark. Oh God. Okay. (laughs) Uh, What was good about this movie and what was bad? What you know? What are strengths and weaknesses? And what did we? What stood out to us? Uh, I'm going to start with the cinematography, actually. Okay. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of surprisingly inventive shots. Uh, oh, yes. There's a great use of space in this film. Uh, in particular, the opening shot is like this wide panning shot across a quiet apartment, and there's a lot of uh, environmental storytelling going on. Uh, you know, he's his alarm goes off, but he's already up. There's, you know, brushing his teeth. And there is a, I think, more so than a lot of these kind of Novo B movies, where you sometimes have very confusing cuts that, like, destroy the ability to have a sense of space. That is one thing I think that was never really an issue in this film, is you do get a sense and establishment of a space, and then the characters and the actors move within that space, and it's very comfortable. I don't think it's overcut. I do think the action isn't necessarily as grandiose? Grandiose. I think it's Yeah. Yeah. Uh, don't mind me. I've been sleep deprived this week, so That's I'm fine. Blah, blah, blah. and I'm dyslexic. So, but yeah, so it's, it's a little. It's not quite as grandiose as something like you know Kingsman, for example. Oh yeah. But it's solid and serviceable, and also aesthetically, that kind of works with the story they're telling. It's not you know 
Kung Fu Hustle, it's like, you know, very quick, very minimal takedowns. It's, you know, it's more Krav Maga than it is Muay Thai. Yeah. I would also say that this is a story that's meant to be played out, um, kind of almost treating the sets as a theatrical space at times. Like, and I don't mean that they're treating this like theater because this is certainly not theater. I mean, um, giving this a kind of like epic scale um, in terms of some of the larger shots, like the establishing shots, and then at times also bringing it down to these very like focused in um, close-up shots. Like I'm thinking specifically of the scene between Denzel Washington and Martin Chokash, who plays this scary... Um, enforcer guy where they're having dinner in a restaurant and the shots get progressively closer and closer to these two men building a kind of tension between them i also want to call particular attention to a shot there's a shot where uh chokas is chasing ralphie the security guard down a row of shelves and it's like you know if you're at a supermarket with someone and you see them at the end of the aisle but they're moving past and so you have to move past and try and catch them stopping in an aisle so you can make eye contact He's pursuing him with his gun, and you follow him over the shoulder, and you see Ralphie, like, three or four times. Yeah. And it, there's just a sense of reality yeah. to that shot. And there's a practicality. There's also the menace of, you know, chasing an opponent, who, or I guess a quarry who can't see you. Mm. And it's just, it's a very grounded, and, like, there's not much to that scene or that sequence of shots, but... It's very real and it's very, and I think that is this movie to a large degree, is it's very grounded and very, not realistic, but naturalistic. Yeah, do you remember the scene where um, the character Teddy, the scary enforcer dude, strangles that young woman, and then we do like this kind of shot where there's, we're pulling out into this neighborhood, and it reveals that he's committed this murder in daylight, and it's just this very banal scene. Do you remember that? I do remember that. And okay. I think it's interesting how Fuqua is using a lot of frames in this. Because, like I said, there's a yeah. lot of mirrors in this film. Yeah. And also, there's a lot of windows. I don't think the windows are used quite as much. But uh, that is a very prominent example where the, you know, you have the scene, but then we move out and we see the scene in a broader context. Uh, there's also characters gathering information or ref- not gathering information. Uh, in particular, uh, there's one shot where uh, where Bob goes up to the Russian restaurant and goes yeah. up to the office and means that. Now here's the, here's a, I think, I think this is a really cool shot because we track the camera past a mirror and in the mirror we see a couple of prostitutes walking past then we track to Bob, and we don't see the prostitutes again in the real world, so to speak. And he goes up. And I think that, and I think, I, I think this has to be a deliberate oh, yeah. metaphor here. It's a demi That's what he's exactly, thinking. Where the, the presentable, the legal entity and the front of the business is, you know, this is a Russian restaurant, but yeah. it's a mob place. They're running hookers out of it. So that's kind of the reality that's revealed through the mirror, but not through our eyes in the real space, so mm. to speak. Okay. Okay. Uh, there is the sense, I think there's a showdown between Bob and the guy I'm going to call Beardy, who has a lovely mustache, by the way. He's got those like wax tips. 
Yes. You know, that kind of Salvador Dalia stuff. I yeah. love it. But uh, they're fighting in a uh, display area full of mirrors and clocks. And I get the sense that uh, Bob is keeping tabs on him through the mirrors because he's hiding behind desks and counters and stuff. And Beardy starts shooting out the mirrors. And symbolically, I can almost see that as being the sense of he is unable to process or you know, have the wisdom to really use that information, uh, that reflection <laughs> that the mirrors are providing. So he shoots them up. Which ends up being his downfall because he gets stabbed with mirror shards. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's moment. maybe getting a bit too into the into the weeds with that, but also I don't, I can't argue against it. And also, you know, death of the author. I think even if that isn't a deliberate thing, and I think it is, considering how clever parts of this movie are, and again, parts of this movie, but also, you know, death of the author. So even yeah. if it wasn't deliberate, I think it's a valid read. Well, and I think, too, um, one of the things that interests me so much about this movie is the positioning of um, Eastern European gangsters as figures of excess. Because, like, the gangster in American culture, be they the Italian mob, the Irish mob at times, um, the Irish mob, for some reason, get humanized a lot more than other um, mafia characters do. Like, for instance, also the Yakuza. They tend to be positioned as these figures of excess. So in that mirror scene where um, Mr. Mustache, as I like to call him, shoots out that mirror, um, part of what's been established before is that this guy is just somebody who is going to shoot at anything. And so there's a kind of excess to his character that's been built in there. The idea that he's not really very precise. He's just kind of shooting to see what falls. So that's kind of a weird moment of characterization, too, that I saw sort of like happening in the film. I'm not sure that I necessarily see that when, because my read on that scene was that it was a tactical decision to limit uh, enemy information. Because one thing okay. is, he is an obvious figure. Yeah. Uh, in particular, you know, he's got, because he's bald, he's got like that pale dot that's the top of his head and yeah. the rest of him is in black. So I think he's a very visible figure. Yeah. And his location is basically a known quantity, whereas Denzel Washington is hiding in the shadows and sneaking around. So in that way, the mirrors are more useful for someone who knows where to look than it is okay. for someone who's scanning. All right. Okay. Um, so, Annie, did you have anything that you want to call particular attention to? Oh, my goodness. Um, so are we talking in terms of, like, shots or just in general about this movie? Well, just mechanically, or I yeah. guess like script stuff is mechanical, but that's if it's more thematic, we might want to dive that into in, into the deep cuts. Yeah, and but we can get to that yeah. in that section. Uh, mechanically, there are some extraordinarily beautiful shots in this movie that involve paintings, um, and I really, really appreciated that. I think that's another reason why I like both this film and John Wick. Uh, unabashedly, I'm being a massive art history nerd right now. <laughs> um, but because these guys are very wealthy gangsters, they collect a lot of art. And I really enjoyed seeing, there's a portrait of Napoleon that's in the last scene with Mr. Pushkin. The scene in the Russian restaurant, there is a um, French painting that's a vista of the Kremlin in the background. There's numerous romanticist and neoclassical paintings that are in... Um, Teddy's apartment or office or wherever he is 
uh, sort of like wherever he's decided to hold his base that are really gorgeous. So I very much appreciated that. Um, and just kind of seeing a director reference all these paintings in this film, I think this goes along with your idea of framing, using windows and mirrors as frames, also using paintings to a certain extent as well. Also, since you mentioned the art, I'm going to talk a little bit about the body art, but there's these lovely tattoos on a lot of the Russian gangsters. In particular, though, on Teddy, we have these lovely tattoos, and he's got epaulettes tattooed on him, which I just think is baller as shit. Uh, but he's also covered in demons and, you know, this kind of Latin-looking script. I think, Annie, you had some more specific comments on that. Um, so I wasn't actually even able to figure out what the script was at the back, like on his back or on his front, because I think some of it's in Cyrillic language, and I don't speak any Eastern European languages, and I don't read them. So if any of our listeners do, we invite you to drop in on our Discord and tell us, what do Martin Chokash's tattoos say? But I will say... It turns out they all say dickhead. That would be be just, like, amazing if the makeup department was just like, hey, fuck you guys. Um, But the demon tattoos in particular... And some of the stuff that's happening on the front of his body, as well as those epaulets, like, I was thinking, okay, this guy must be, like, a a big, kind of, like, heavy, like, somebody who has worked in the military has probably been a hitman for a very long time, even before they tell us Teddy's backstory. So his tattoos are really kind of Teddy's history as a person um, who's been participating in this mob life for a real long time. Yeah. And I also want to compliment uh, Chokesh's performance as Teddy. I think he does a fantastic job in it. And he plays, and not not only just the acting, but the physicality of his work, particularly the scene where he beats the shit out of the Irish mob boss. There's a lot of savagery to that. But also, he has a very commanding presence in a room. Uh, In particular, when he's first introduced, he's... You know, up against David Harbour, who sees himself as being a local boss, and he has this little speech, and it's a little melodramatic, but also it's a wonderful little, look, I'm not your bitch, you're my bitch moment. Yeah. And he really sells that. Yeah, he does. What was weird, though, is I don't know much about Russian accents, but to me, his accent initially came off as sounding a little British. Um, yeah, and that arguably, I, so I don't know whether this is Chokash doing a thing or what. I do know that he is, was raised partly in Australia. Um, so uh, he's played a lot of films where he's used a British accent, but also it's possible too that they're using a sort of posh British accent to differentiate between him and the other mob members in terms of class status. Like, this guy, you know, maybe potentially he went to a school that taught him, um, like, Britishy English, not, like, how I'm speaking right now, which is not eloquent because it's American. So, yeah, I looked at it that way. Yeah, because, I mean, that was one thing that I kind of picked up on was... Uh, I, I thought before, you know, you showed off the tattoos and really established him as a Russian figure in fiction, I did think that he was like some kind of British specialist that the Russians had brought in, which was kind of a direct contrast to the kind of blue-collar, you know, salt-of-the-earth character that Robert McCall is. Yeah. 
Uh, and particularly because, you know, he's always wearing suits uh, and he presents himself as a lead, an organizational leader, whereas, you know, Robert McCall is more of a mentor and a teacher and is not, is he is in hiding, he is a humble man. So th- I, I felt like that was yeah. a direct contrast, but I could see... I, like it's a confusing accent. I'm not quite sure where it places, it, but it is it's because it does read as partly like it sounds a little vaguely Eastern European, like maybe a tiny bit Bulgarian um, or Russian at times, and then also very very Britishy. So like posh school, which we don't know given Teddy's history. Um, Teddy, it's revealed at the end of the movie, is kind of he was sort of orphaned may have committed a murder most likely committed the murder of his foster parents um so it's possible that he went to a posh british school but it's also very very possible that this is just a thing that he does it's a part of his shtick well also there's the fact that they conceal his true name up until the end i think it's nikolai is his true name but they call him teddy and teddy is a very british name teddy yeah it's very like you went to eaton for some reason name yes. yeah absolutely um do you have anything that you think uh is kind of a failure or a weakness on the part of this film anything that you think was you know a dislike for you there's actually a lot of things that i don't like about this film for having enjoyed it so much um i'll leave some of them to you but i will say this i find it super strange that Chloe Moretz's character comes up at the beginning of the film as kind of like the incentive moment for Robert McCall, Denzel Washington's character, to get involved in dismantling this East Coast hub of the Russian mob. And then she disappears for the middle third of the movie and reappears at the movie's end. Um, With like only one hospital scene in between, it's that's a little weird for me. Uh, her character just kind of, like, evaporates, I guess. Um, I don't know. What did you think of that? Like, was that an issue for you, or am I just... What's what's strange for me is... I, I, I'm, I, I consider myself to be a fan of uh, Moritz's work, and I didn't know she was in this, and I initially didn't recognize her because of the hair and the makeup. Yeah. Uh, but my, I believe my comment to you, Annie, was, like, it looks like they stole an Olsen twin from the early 2000s and, yes. like, <laughs> that is what you said. grew her up in a vat and just, like, she, she, her performance is very awkward in a way that I think is, like, authentic to a character she's trying to portray, but it's kind of, like, klutzy. It's like, it's like, like a foal, you know, where it's just, like, it's not quite fitting in her skin. It is a tiny bit, and, like, I'm wondering why that is, whether that's the actor making a choice there or not, because I I do know that she did a lot of research on sex workers. I don't know if she interviewed any, but supposedly she may have. So it's possible that she may have done some work with somebody trying to do some method acting there, but I don't know. Um, Also, I think, too, that awkwardness would be produced by the very fact that she has a man taking a kind of platonic and paternal interest in her and not being used to that kind of thing. Um, yeah. To me, that would naturally produce awkwardness. Do you think so? Absolutely. Uh, but, like, and this gets into that kind of discussion that I think is a little bit reductive about film, but I feel like it kind of applies here where... I think it's a weakness of the script is that it kind of doesn't make sense to a certain degree. I mean, like you said, she disappears for a majority of the movie, but 
I don't feel like Robert actually has any kind of emotional connection to this girl. It's just, this girl's in trouble. Oh, I'm just gonna go start doing a bunch of murders to save her. And, like, while that's kind of commendable in its own right, it's also, I think, in direct contrast to the kind of character he's portrayed as. He's very careful and meticulous. He's a planner and a schemer. He doesn't win through, like, amazing sharpshooting skills or, you know, overwhelming force. He wins by cleverness and pre-planning. Yeah. And this kind of obsessive quality of himself. So, to just kind of drop things and go into, like, a den of wolves without a plan and to start... And he's a local... I'm sure there's... He's an he's an ex-intelligence officer. There is no yeah. way he doesn't know the kind of organizational power vacuum that he's going to create and the kind of chaos and retribution he's going to invite. You know, he's careful enough that it's basically through having, like, a Sherlockian character that he's able to be traced back at all. Oh, yeah. And... But I don't feel like we're given really an emotional... There's not an emotional beat that marks... Um, this transition between Robert meeting her and making this decision other than her getting beaten up, which is kind of interesting. Um, so we're just not really given enough character development between the two of them, other than the fact that he's kind of weirdly mentoring her to a certain extent, you know, like telling yeah. her like being a singer is, is a good choice for her and sort of, you know, being willing to listen, being that still quiet voice which is what she calls him. Well, I mean, I, I think it would be so far as to call it an actual plot hole because one of the things is he seems to have a very rooted, very established life, and it's very quiet and it's very controlled, and yeah. he's very careful. So for him to go from that to... To uproot himself you know, and do this, yeah. To, yeah. Yeah, to uproot himself and to cause all this noise and fire would require this huge emotional investment, and I don't think we got that. In particular, also... We're not shown them having any routine together, except that they some he goes to a diner as a for, matter of habit, and she's there twice. Because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't he meet her there for the first time in the film? So I think he meets her a total of twice before he decides to intervene and try to buy her out of sex trafficking. He he may have. Um, that scene was sort of hard for me to read. I I weirdly got this feeling that you know, like he had gone there to read routinely and all of a sudden you know like he had kind of encountered this young woman and so there had been multiple meetings potentially that are just sort of very quiet meetings before this i think that i, I think know. if there have been meetings before this i don't think it was well portrayed it's kind of the yeah. same issue i have with the film adaptation of lame is yes where yeah. i think on stage you know it would work perfectly because you'd have, you know, stage changes and elements rolling on and off, and you have a song to cover it, and it would create the sense of the passage of time. But in the film, I don't think they signal it properly, and it looks like Anne Hathaway just kind of is dying from a single night whoring. Right. So I think the main way that I see the passage of time being signaled in this is the changing of Chloe Moretz's wigs and clothing. And that is how that's marked so you're right it, it's not particularly marked very well and it, but that's another that's kind of the issue there it's not necessarily a script writing lacuna or something like that it's more like this needed to be fleshed out a tiny bit better i think what i would have liked to see then i think is maybe three or even four meetings to first of all is because twice is a coincidence three times is a pattern right yeah and I think particularly what 
it's like, and I think they wanted it to be a pattern because the. Uh, I think so too. Who, who, who's the guy at what the is guy, it? A diner the, or a restaurant? Yeah, I think his name's like Freddie or something, and he knows him. Yeah, the 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 patron, and he's like that girl you keep talking to. She's there, and like. What what kind of weirds me out about that is because I have this sense that they barely know each other. Yeah. I feel like that guy is picking up or like perceiving that there's some kind of romantic connection there. It's like, you know, that girl that you're so interested in. Like that's the kind of vibe I get and that's kind of gross. Oh yeah, no, it's totally uh, squeaky. Because I, I mean, like I think if you had established this kind of like warm fuzzy tone and like, you know, a bit of sunshine, you know, some riding up on Salisbury Hill kind of film tone to their relationship and like some extended stay of continuity with them. Then I think it'd be like, Oh yeah, your friend. But to me, it, I still don't see it as being anything other than him seeing like that girl you're always talking to, you know? Yeah. And they're still in the tentative stages of the relationship. Cause he, the first interaction he has with her, uh, he talks to her while she's over there. He's like, you know, sugar's bad for you, bad for your singing voice. And they're talking from across from each other. When she when he hands her the birthday donut or whatever, she comes and sits at his table. That's the second interaction they have. So that's the first time they sit at a table together. So we don't have a continuum. We don't have no, a we spectrum don't. of time. We just have what looks like the first two meetings, and then he's off to save her world. Right. And I think that's the other issue that I have with this is I needed an emotional moment in which she decides to trust this guy. Because, you know, like, she is a sex worker, she's being forced, It it's made fairly clear to us that she has been brought in to do this work as a child. So this is somebody who has been socialized to being in, like, a transactional sexual relationship with men since childhood. So... I kind of needed a moment there where he either does something or... They needed to show us that he is that still quiet voice for her rather than telling us that. I, I think that's part of where I'm having an issue with that relationship. Like, I needed that established. I want to see the first meeting, not like, I assume we were on the second and third meeting. But that's my reading of it. I don't know. I think my reading of it is that it was the first meeting. He's, it okay. seems to be part of his character that he is naturally helpful and paternal to almost everyone. Yeah. So it well, seems like he was just too. offering her unsolicited advice. Okay. Yeah. Um, but also, I'm thinking about this now, and I actually do take even greater issue with it now that I'm thinking back on it, because he doesn't seek her approval for this at all. He just decides to do this for her. And I understand that, you know, she is in a position of vulnerability and that she also you know, tries the to lines protect little... him. She tells him yep. not to do it. Exactly. So I, I understand that, like, the dynamics are a little fuzzy here. Yeah. But at the same time, he has decided to save her without her consent, essentially. And, like, that's the kind of thing where, like, maybe you can't. I, I'm, I'm sure, like, I'm not saying that, you know, no, she wants to stay in this horrible situation. I'm absolutely not saying that. But I'm also sensing that she was more, I, I think she probably, I characterize her as being more scared of the consequences than yeah, she was of definitely. the status quo. Definitely. And per, considering what happened, I'm yeah. really surprised they didn't kill her. Because, uh, like, he attracted down to her. There are a lot of things in this movie where I had the thought like okay if this was in real life this is what would be happening that was also one of my thoughts too is that she dies 
um, they beat her and she dies. Because that would make the most yeah. sense, right? So I would also say um, that it does, I think, strengthen the narrative, though, of him as... Like, it strengthens the theory, I think, of him being CIA specifically. Yeah. Because, you know, American intervention. That's kind of their thing. Is like, oh, it seems you got a problem there. Be a shame if we were to uh, fund a coup. You know? <laughs> so, like, he, he sees a problem and he decides unilaterally to take action without considering or even... And, like, yes, obstinately, he does start with a, you know a peaceful offer is like, you know, I'm going to buy the girl's freedom. And that I think is also like, it's, it's just kind of weird. Cause imagine for a second that that gambit succeeds and he approaches her. He's like, you're free to go. I have bought you freedom for a second. This is like, I now owe you everything. And even if you like, even if, if you do a favor for someone and you say, you don't owe me shit, this one's on the house, people still feel indebted to you. So to like, to, Put that kind of social debt on someone unknowingly, I think is really, and like, it's benevolent. It's clear that he's characterized here as a savior and a paternal figure, but it's still, like, I don't want to say bad, but weird. Well, like, you know, it's, it's not it's, a cool vibe. It's benevolent paternalism, which I think is just kind of like, that is inherent in this film. Because it's so deeply rooted in, in that idea, like, of... He's kind of like the dad who swoops in at the last moment and saves the kid from the bully. Like, that is really sort of what this is about. And the I, the whole concept of the Equalizer as a character, you know, like, from the TV show, from the 80s, is kind of like that. People request help, and, and he kind of, like, comes into it. Which I think is interesting in this one, because she doesn't do that. And then at the end, no one asked for his help in this movie. Right. No one asked for his help. And then he decides to kind of create a business around that. So that's another thing that could have probably been fleshed out in a second or third draft of the script. I mean, here's here's how I think you could actually sell that pretty well. I think if you set it up in such a way that he knows these people and maybe he catches hints of them asking for help through other means like, you know, uh, so he sees, like, you know, Ralphie, like, taking out, a per like, a payday loan or something to help cover damages or something, and seeing, not necessarily, like, asking for help, but signs of struggle. I mean, they are struggling, obviously, they're having these issues, but signs of them reaching out for help among other people or through other yeah. means, like, you know, he stumbles on the Craigslist thing, or, like, he finds a message board where people are, like, asking for, like, you know, our slash legal advice, how do I leave my pimp, you know? Something yeah. like that. I think would be just the affirmation that your clients, I guess, are actually seeking any kind of help. Because this this is one of those things where it's kind of like a trolley problem. It's like a thought experiment because yeah. the construct of the narrative is set in such a way that it's kind of unambiguously moral for him to help these people. Because right. if you don't help these people, they, they are die. the victims of crime, they are yeah. exploited, they are coerced, they are extorted. And so there's not really a gray area to say, you know, is the crime of overriding their, you know, sovereign will greater than the cr crime of letting them suffer? Because right, their suffering right, right. is, you know, it is, how do I say this? It's categorically designed in such a way that exactly. it is bad. Exactly. And there, yeah. there's no shades of gray. It's one of those, it's kind of morally absolute. Yeah. Uh, well, and I, and think, I think 
that's part of this movie is I don't want to say that there is a simplistic philosophical moral base to this movie I think the word um simple as in uncomplicated morality I think uncomplicated morality that is a little bit more indicative of of the sort of moral universe that this movie creates don't you think um like with his sort of like paternalism and with them doing the sort of like spaghetti western slash um Kurosawa samurai movie thing where they create bad characters who are so bad that you just kind of can't wait to see them die. I don't know. That's sort of what I see as being a thing that establishes the moral universe here. It's a fairly uncomplicated moral universe. Like, there, people have choices, too, right? So think about um, what Washington's character says to Ralphie. He says, you know, like, you have a choice. You can do this, and you can become a security guard, or you can do this, and, and not... And he also offers a choice to Teddy as well. He he tells Teddy that there have been choices all along this way. So this is kind of an... It's not necessarily as complicated of a, a moral universe as, as it could have been, potentially. Here, here's the thing about the choice dynamic, though, and I find this very strange, because I feel like it's very much a letter and not spirit of the law kind of thing. Okay. Uh, because when... pretty Look at his interactions with... Uh, with David Harbour, okay, uh, who plays uh, Detective Masters, who is a corrupt cop, and when he's holding up the badge, he's got him cuffed. He's had him turn in the he's he's had him call in the money laundering operation, and he's handcuffed him, and he's basically left proof that he's a corrupt cop there. And you know, you've ruined me. The mob will kill me. Blah blah blah. Yeah. And he's holding up his badge to him as a symbol. And he's saying, "You betrayed this badge. You're a bad cop." And David Harbour's saying. I, I was a good cop. I was a good cop. And it's a great moment for him, actually. David Harbour is pretty yeah. good in this. But uh, I think it, what's implicit in that is you made the wrong choice. You made a choice long ago, and thus I cannot help you. Uh, so there, there's this kind of, there's this idea of a choice is being presented, but also you can present a choice that, no, you can present a choice that no one will actually consider both sides of. Because when you say, oh, yeah, pull out your criminal empire or I kill all of you, uh, you are you don't have a lot of leeway to say, oh, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, uproot this criminal enterprise and this empire and these connections and create a power vacuum. It's not as simple as just I'm going to walk away. And, you know, Teddy has a boss who's like is threatening him at the point. He's like, you know, fix it or don't come back. So to say you know, I offered you a choice is, yes, technically you did, but I really don't think you gave a choice. You gave a hard, you gave a rock and a hard place choice. Right, you gave him a hard line. And, I mean, that's part of this sort of, like, bootstrap morality that I see going on where people are supposedly offered choices, but the reality of those choices is actually a lot more complex in real life. So the movie tries to make these choices seem simplified to sort of justify um, his actions. That's kind of what I'm saying. Exactly. And that's kind of my problem. That's kind of my personal beef with like trolley problems in general, because they are designed to remove nuance because you say like, oh, yeah, uh, for those of you unfamiliar with the trolley problem, uh, a trolley is going down a track and on the track is one person is our five people tied to the track. 
but you are next to a switch, which will allow you to divert it onto a different track on which there is only one person tied up. So the question is, do you throw the switch? Do you kill one person to save five? Uh, is killing five more acceptable because you did not actually perform any act which caused their death? You are merely a witness and you are neglecting to save them. But in doing so, you're failing to murder another person and so on. And there's many versions of this. But they abstract things to such a way as they look at a single axis of morality or philosophy. Uh, so, for example, they say, okay, you know what? Uh, maybe you, maybe you're okay sacrificing one to save five because these people have obviously been set up by someone else. Okay, new version. Uh, you're standing over a bridge in over a, on the bridge over a trolley, and there's a fat man who, if you push in front of the trolley, the it will stop. And so now, is it different because there's an active act of murder? And in all of these cases, you say, oh, how about I shout at the trolley, or you know, I pull the I pull the lever halfway so the trolley derails. And always the answer is, no, that's not how this works. And eventually it comes down to, okay, you are a switch-pulling robot and you have no mouth. You cannot scream. The only thing you can do is this. And that's kind of how these choices work is you do this or this. And by that metric, I judged you. And it's, it's ignoring all the nuance and the story supports it. And it kind of works for this film. But to look at it as a broader kind of philosophical narrative about good oh, and yeah. evil no, or choice and morality, I feel like it's very reductive. Yeah. And it's kind of serving to create this kind of moral clear path for exactly. Robert McCall, which I don't think he actually walks if you look at him as a real person. Right, exactly. In the narrative of this film, he is a just and moral person. Mm -hmm. But... As a human being, there's a lot, lot more complicated stuff, stuff. to him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think actually that's probably where I have a major criticism of this film is the third okay. act is very weak. Oh God! Uh, yes. Particularly, uh, <laughs> it begins with he, he because it starts very grounded. He ruins their money laundering operation. There's a lot of things that are very plausible. One man could do this with the intelligent, not the intelligence as the attribute, but you know the information, the intelligence, and the will and the savvy. Like you know, he shuts down a huge money laundering thing because it's a centralized location. He's blackmailing a detective who's on their payroll, and that's a, like a really cool, really grounded thing. But next thing you know is he's blowing up a tanker, and first of all. Uh, Antoine Fuqua, I remember Man on Fire too, and you're doing a pale imitation, my good sir. Um, but from that point on, any pretense of moral grayness or ambiguity is kind of thrown out because you've got the situation now where you've got hostages and you're fooling them and they're joining, they're going to kill you. So like there, there's no scenario where you do anything but kill all the bad guys. Right. And once you have, actually, I think once that moral grayness because as poorly as it's done I do think the moral grayness is still somewhat present and somewhat informs the tone of the rest of the movie once you get to the point where it's just oh so the only thing that's left to do is to kill the bad guys it becomes uncomplicated and it becomes uninteresting I feel like mm, that part exactly. of the film is even though you're doing like this whole home alone in a Lowe's thing it's still boilerplate you know it's still one bad guy doing the John Rambo doing the predator thing where you're stalking through and being stealthy. It's it's oh, die yeah. hard now. It's oh, just yeah. die hard. And in particular, I think what really I think sold to me is the warehouse scene because right. he, it seems like he has every opportunity to take some of their guns and yep. he's been shown yeah. to be competent with a gun. He's, you know, 
implied to be an ex-CIA guy or whatever. So, because, especially, the first guy he kills in the warehouse, he strings up and he's, I think he's, like, strangling him with some kind of razor wire or something. Mm-hmm. And the guy's strangled and bleeding out, and he's hanging in there, and Robert McCall is just staring at him while sitting up in the shelf right on a level with him. And he has every opportunity, I think, to just reach out and take his gun. And instead, he's fighting with, you know, gardening shears and those weird, like, garden cutters on the ends of poles or, you know, a drill or blowtorch. And I feel like it's such an omission. There's no narrative conceit to say why he doesn't just grab a gun and turn this into a tactical situation. So it feels gimmicky. And I think... So there actually is somewhat of an explanation to that within the film. It's very cursory, and I don't know that it does that justice. And again, I think it also serves this kind of uncomplicated um, morality structure that operates within the film. So the first time that he kills a guy, I think it might be in the the mob hangout where... (laughs) He just kills, straight up kills all those guys. He sits down next to a guy and he says, I'm sorry. Um, I've also looked up to see whether he does any, like, shooting in this movie. There's only one time that he does it, and it's when another guy has a gun in his hand, so he doesn't, he isn't really shooting another person. He's shooting a gun that's in another guy's hand. So I get this sort of, like, um, he's above using a gun type thing um from that I I also get the feeling that when he says I'm sorry like there's this implication that he genuinely regrets all the people that he kills and so thus he is made more noble by more intimately killing these people by choosing to do this violence up close but that doesn't get carried through in the script at all like these kills at the end in the warehouse they're very impersonal (laughs) Um, with the exception of the guy who gets hung with the razor wire. I mean, I think that's the one. So it yeah. it's, doesn't really work to me. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing about that, though, is he manages to get the guy to shoot the other guy yeah. in the neck. In the glancing shot that gives him time to bleed out so he can have this conversation. I don't know a hundred percent that that's a deliberate decision on his part but i feel like it is because he does focus on that region neck on the tattoo yeah in his little like uh uh sherlock holmes here's what i'm going to do planning these are these are going to be the relevant things by the way i love how hard they signpost that he's going to use the corkscrews like it's Uh, like five minutes before he actually does it's great so i feel like even if he was using a gun he could be partially lethal or so lethal or intimate or quiet with it. I just, I feel like this is a narrative aesthetic decision and not a character decision. Yeah, I think I'm going to differ with you there on that, but still, um, I, I do see it as kind of like underpinning this sort of like the knight type morality structure, right? The knight kills intimately. He doesn't kill in a very impersonal way. Whereas if you you know, like, juxtapose that with Teddy, who is his foil, constant use of guns. It's, it's like, it is a part of Teddy. Um, Teddy also kills intimately, too, like, the strangulation scene, which is particularly disturbing. So I do think the strangulation scene, there's the beating. Yeah. And here's the thing, I don't think Teddy necessarily 
Teddy has thugs that use guns, but I don't think he himself uses a gun up until the final warehouse confrontation. And here's, uh -huh. the, here's the thing, though. Um, I, and I think him ha using a gun, I think, would actually probably help the kind of knightly image. And I'll explain yeah. why in a second. Okay. Because here's the thing. Uh, first of all, he is, uh, you know, ex-Special Forces, ex-Black Ops, whatever his past is. Uh, he goes back and, you know, utilizes some of his contacts and resources from that previous life. But uh, one thing he says is that he regrets the kind of man he used to be and he promised to never be that person again. Okay. But the implication of that is, oh, no, no, because he does, he explicitly says that to yeah. Teddy is, I promise never to be that man again, but for you, I'll make an exception. Yeah. And so I think to... To have that, I think, maybe for the first part of the movie, right. I think is fine. But for that last warehouse sequence where he's oh, deciding yeah. to become the monster, to be the beast, to just slaughter all these people because that's the only option presented to him, I think it would have been a stronger narrative thread for him to pick up the old sword, so to speak. Yep. No, I totally agree with you. I just, I get the feeling that um, that may have been how the director was thinking, or from my perspective, um, but I think that you're right, that that would have been a good moment to be like, this is the spy who's, he's not coming in from the cold, he's going back out into the cold again. That would have been that moment to have him pick up that gun. I totally agree with you on yeah. that. And yeah, and that's the other thing, though, um, because he, it, at the end, the narrative doesn't support that he succeeds at avoiding using gun because he uses a nail gun as a gun. Right. A nail gun will right. not fire a projectile that hard and that fast to, you know, shoot through a person and a wall to be that lethal of a weapon at that range. A nail gun is dangerous, yes, but a nail gun, a nail is not an aerodynamic projectile. They're not designed with the same tolerances as bullets. There is no barrel to create that kind of pressure to right. drive it more than a couple inches with any significant force. And they're also not that dangerous, you know. A bullet is not a knife. A bullet does not cut you. A bullet is a hammer. It yeah. bludgeons you in a very localized area. Whereas armor-piercing rounds actually kill you slower because they deal less damage to the body. Right. So, and here's the thing. Like, it's really difficult to kill someone with a nail gun. Like, there was a guy who... I remember there was a story of a guy who tried to kill himself with a nail gun and yeah. he ended up in hospital with, like, 19 nails in his head and he, he was fine. Yep. So, you know, to do it at that distance, I feel like the narrative just abandons pretense of reality to give him a deus ex machina to right. say, oh, he won this situation without a gun. Because also, that would have been a great moment for him to pick up a gun. Like, if he had some kind of established prohibition on guns, like, he's like, you know... Yeah. Like, if you had some kind of narrative where, like, maybe he's at the house with his old CIA buddies and he's like, I know... He's like, no, no. He's like, you know, yeah, no, sure. Uh, I can give you his address. Uh, you can go here and just shoot him. It's like, no, no, I promise never to shoot someone again. Something like that. Just something small. And with, obviously, more passes and editing than I just threw onto that one. That right. was like me yeah. pulling it out of my ass. But if you had that, and then at the end, he kills Teddy by shooting him. That right. would be a powerful moment. Oh, right. But I don't think there was enough attention to to earning those moments in the screenplay. And, yeah, I... There was not. Even the way that um, McCall's violence is introduced to us, too, right? In the scene with these 
what is it, five guys that he takes down in that scene? I think it's like five. Um, it is yeah. a scene of extreme beauty on the one hand in terms of cinematography and the way, the precision with which it's shot. But it's also a scene of extreme excessive violence um, on the part of McCall. So, like, it kind of goes from zero to 60 in, like, less than a second to a certain extent. Do you think that this was a case where we needed to build up to that? Or was that scene, should that scene have stayed intact? I think that scene was fine. But I will say that the action in that is very stylized in such a way that it, I don't think it's quite as grounded as it could be. Uh, in particular, you have the, some some of those deaths are very elaborate. Like you've got the shooting death, that's fine. You've got the guy killing the guys with their own knives. That's cool. That's and that's an actual technique in some cases where you know you fold someone's elbow so they stab themselves under the ribs. It's pretty cool. As cool, I mean, as cool as you know, killing someone is. It's a self defense thing. But also, you have something where he kills a guy by shoving a shot glass into his eye socket. And that's like something out of Riddick, you know? Oh, yeah, no, that was really And the, the corkscrews <laughs> were just gratuitous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, because I think that guy was coming at him with a knife, and he's mm-hmm. just, you know, or, or I think he was just trying to beat him up, and he's just stabbing and twisting corkscrews into him, pulling it up under his jaw and holding his head up. Mm. And so, like, that, it, it, it's excessive, and it's indulgent to a character. It is. Now, here's something I think, I, I'm wondering if you agree with me on mm. this. But I feel like the camera, the cinematography focuses on Robert in such a way to in to look at him like a fascinating animal. Oh. Because here's one shot that comes up repeatedly that I think kind of sells this for me, is whenever he's doing his focusing pre-planning phase. Yeah. And we have that really tight shot on his eyes. And what that looks like, that sh- what that shot reminds me of, is anytime you have the close-up on the eye of a horse... And I don't know what it is about those shots aesthetically, huh. but that is the exact image that goes into my mind. And also the spe- the spectacle of his violence. His violence mm. is always spectacular, always controlled. So I feel like in a way, it's almost like a character study or like a documentary, like this kind of clip show of this most fascinating killer. I don't know if I see some of the shots creating the same thing that you do in terms of, like, um, potentially kind of almost being like looking at a fascinating animal. I do think that there's spectacularized violence going on in here, which is, in part, it is so spectacular because of how unremarkable and unspectacular the rest of his life is. Um, and the fact that, you know, like he works at a Lowe's, he jokes with people about being on Soul Train and being one of the pips, um, while people kind of tend to view him as sort of like this older, like almost, he's like somebody's grandpa, like that type of figure. So I think that's set up, um, fairly well. I don't, I don't know what to make of the spectacular violence, in particular because there are so many spy genre movies that utilize that. Um, in this case, though, in The Equalizer, it is a lot more brutal, but also I saw John Wick, like, two weeks after I saw this, and that also uses very spectacularized, highly brutal, um, like, 
fighting in it as well. It's just, it's telling a different story. Well, here's the thing, though. I think that this, this film does have a lot in common with John Wick, but here's the thing. If you look at the narrative of John Wick, the narrative of John Wick is that John Wick is the babushka, not the babushka, the, the Baba, uh, Yaga. Baba Yaga. You know, he's, yeah. <laughs> sorry, the babushka. the babushka. John Wick is your grandma. Somebody's grandmother. That's who John Wick okay. is. Hey, I, if, if Keanu Reeves was my grandma, I'd be happy. I, so, uh, here's the thing. Uh, the narrative is that uh, John Wick is the Baba Yaga, and he is retired and lived a quiet life. And it's about taking that quiet life away from him and revealing the monster that is inside, revealing the boogeyman. Is yeah. that what he is inside? So I feel like this is a similar narrative where who Robert McCall is yeah. is this brutal killer and the quiet, you know, paternal grandpa figure, the mentor, the teacher, is kind of a disguise or something to fill the time and to fill the void left by not having that spectacular violence. I feel oh like the film presents his violence as his true self particularly at the end there you see him in the rain it's almost like a baptism it's indulgent oh yeah it's something okay. that is very natural for him and there is that awkwardness to his performance as having a quiet life because his home is empty it's not that he, i don't feel like he's comfortable in that role i feel like it's a utilitarian it's a disguise he's you know he's faked his death he's lives a quiet life it's unassuming he has a very rote routine okay and he seems to, I think, get most of his joy, I think, in those moments from being a mentor and from involving himself in the lives of others. I don't think that he necessarily has too much going on in his own life. He has no mm. attachments. He's not wearing a wedding ring. Right. He doesn't seem to have any hobbies. Like, he's not even playing. Like, he's just reading yeah. books. And that's kind of fulfilling, like, you know, the goals or dreams of his dead wife. So that's not even a connection to a living person. That's not necessarily something that he is enjoying for his own sake. I mean, he definitely appreciates them. He makes literary references, and he discusses the books with Chloe Grace Moritz. But I don't feel like that's him. I don't feel like that's part of him. I, I feel like it's a shell that falls away to reveal the nougaty center, which is killing people with a nail gun. Okay, can I present an alternate theory? <laughs> Please because I, I really, really like this theory that you've come up with. I think it's fascinating, this idea that his true self um, is the self that kills. I think you can do an alternate reading of this um, through the lens of, of some of the things that Denzel Washington has said in interviews before um, about keeping demons at bay, about violence as a demon that is unleashed. It's a part of the self that is... Um, abject, something that needs to be constantly placed under control. So yes, it's part of the self, but is it his true self? Um, I think you can read this movie as asking that question. Is this his true self? There are times in the movie where he seems to regret um, killing these guys. Like he, he apologizes to somebody as they're dying, which is sort of weird. Claims to offer people choices. Um, juxtapose him again with Teddy. Teddy has literal demons on his back. He wears his kind of demon side. Um, yes, he may conceal it at times, but he kind of wears it on his sleeve to a certain extent, too. Um, he has it as a sleeve. Yeah, he has, it, he has it as a literal sleeve. So um, Teddy is somebody who, once he lets his demons out, may not be interested in writing them in again. 
And that's partly what differentiates Robert McCall from Teddy, um, is about this idea of the true self, of whether the, you let the demons take over versus restraining them to a certain extent. Like, I have no doubt that after this, Robert McCall will continue to do stuff like this, but there will be a very restrained period where he collects information over a long time. So I, it's not diametrically opposed to what you're saying, but I, I think it's there are two different viewpoints on this. I do think so, but here, here's here's my response to that, is that when I look at how he does these things, he is constantly... I, I think he's doing the it's coming right at us defense because he is constantly putting himself in situations where violence is unavoidable. He knows that's a Russian mob bar. He knows that they're not going to accept the money. He's a CIA operative. He's going to know the kind of organizations, the kind of people, and the kind of power dynamics of these things. He knows that if you go up to someone and offer them money, it, like a pittance, basically, for one of the... Not only that, but to have if someone walk into your place unannounced... Uh, and take something from you to get one over you in the deal would be a show of weakness for them. He's constantly putting himself in these situations where there, there's no answer but violence. And he has resources to take care of these, like the corrupt cops. He has video of them extorting people. He could have just submitted that and dealt with the problem. Instead, he chooses to confront them in such a way that he gets to rough them up. He doesn't kill them, but he gets to rough them up. I feel that even if he... Even, even if he rationalizes that violence is a part of the self that must be tamed and contained, he is still consciously or unconsciously indulging in that vice, which I think kind of plays to my narrative that he is the demon and that he is, out of some sense of practicality or, sens or sentimentality, trying not to be that. Okay. Okay. All right. So... Two different readings of Robert McCall. Uh, I mean, listeners, what do you think? Uh, let us know. But also, can we talk about Robert McCall and the idea of obsessive-compulsive disorder? Did we... Yeah, we definitely need to talk about that. Yeah. Because that was one of the th reasons that this stood out in my memory is the marketing and the kind of uh, general milieu of like, yeah, we've got this neuroatypical hero. And that was like I think one of the selling points of the book, uh, not the, of the of the movie. What the fuck am I smoking? And so I, I I felt like it really disappointed on that premise. I also totally agree. I think that this is not an obsessive compulsive disorder portrayal. I think it's occasionally placed in there, but I, I I'm just not seeing it at times. He's very precise, and it's. It's made painfully clear to us as well that Robert McCall has an eidetic memory, as in he sees things, he knows where they are. Um, yep. But I'm I'm not sure that other than the door shutting three times in that first um, big fight scene, I don't know that we see stuff that indicates that he's OCD. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Uh, he is definitely shown to be obsessive, but... He's obsessive in the kind of way that is like, oh my god, I'm so OCD. Like, I hate it when things are out of it. Like, that's the kind of thing he has. He has this, you know, uh, colloquial o OCD. You could definitely say that. But he does not have OCD. It does not destroy him. Like, the, that's why it's D. D stands for disorder. Obsessive compulsive disorder is where you have these obsessions and compulsions that will ruin your life, that are detrimental to your health and well-being. And, like, moving the skulls around... 
first of all, I think is like, it's weird because they're already like organized by size and they're in a line. Like it's, he's not organizing them. He's just putting them in what I feel is much more of like a threatening metaphor than actually setting it up. He, like, I thought he was going to throw one at someone. Uh, so. Well, and it's showing that he can exert power over their space. And, and that's what, what's part of that threat there. So like, it's also utilitarian and not necessarily a compulsion to rearrange. Yeah, because one thing I want to contrast this with is uh, there's a 2016 film, The Accountant, with... Uh, right. Hold up. With, with Sorry. There's this 2016 film, The Accountant, with Ben Affleck, who is explicitly an autistic person raised to be some kind of super assassin. And that, that one has its own issues dealing with autism and so on. But one thing I think that that film did really well was it showed... Uh, ben Affleck struggling with his disorder, with his, you know, neurodivergence, because, like, there's a scene where he's, like, in a room massaging his muscles, and he's got a strobe light on and some kind of timer, and he's, like, starts beating the crap out of himself. Like, he's struggling with a demon. I don't feel like Robert McCall ever struggled with his obsession or his compulsion, and I feel like it's very, it's a very superficial read, and to say that this character is has OCD, I think, contributes to this idea of accepting this colloquial definition of it that is not medically helpful for people who actually suffer from these things and is not an excuse for anything that he does, really. No, I mean, I think, too, that what could be read on a surface level as being OCD... um, So, for instance, I'm thinking of the first sequence of the film. This guy is up before the alarm, and he's doing exercise, he is making his food, he's made his smoothie for himself, so he, he prepares his own food. That is all stuff that could come to you from military training, too. So I don't really see that as being a particular part of this. Um, the stuff with the skulls moving around, like, again, that could be military training. It's distraction. It's a way to manipulate somebody else's space and take control over it. So, yeah, this doesn't feel like a portrayal of neurodivergence. It feels like either a surface-level engagement with OCD or a portrayal that fits OCD into his kind of military schedule and suggests, like, this was useful to him. The yeah. other thing also I see is this falls almost into kind of savantism, which is kind of gross on its own. Like this idea of, oh, your brain is broken, therefore you're super good at this thing. And because c- he's obsessed, he tracks seconds and so on. And he's able to like basically predict the length of a fight. But he, you know, he sees all the aspects. He sets up everything in that kind of, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes Robert Downey Jr. way of, I see all the elements, I know what I'm going to do, let me execute the plan now. And that's kind of fine, but to throw in this idea of him being OCD, I feel like attributes that to it, rather than to any kind of military training or expertise. And I feel like it goes into this kind of like, you know, uh, you know, OCD means you're really good at this, or, you know, autism means you're really good at math. Like, it's that kind of generalization and also, like, unhelpful reading that isn't really based on the realities of the experiences for a lot of people because like savantism is like first of all like the concept of the idiot savant is first of all it it comes with the baggage of idiot savant like there's you know savantism on its own but also it's not 
just this objectively better than normal people thing where you're saying like, oh yeah, no, I can draw the New York from a single helicopter ride. It's like, yeah, but you have difficulties from having your brain wired that way. And I don't see that he has any difficulties with that. Maybe he's a little emotionally stunted and has difficulty relating to people, but also he's shown to be very emotionally savvy and friendly and charismatic. Uh, you know, he befriends Chloe Grace Moretz basically out of being complete strangers. And in a diner where, you know, she's having breakfast, which is, I think, a place where normally, and especially for a sex worker, you'd be very defensive. Yeah, I mean, I think in any space that you go into as a, a woman sex worker, yeah, pretty much any space is going to be a little bit, you don't know what's going to That threw happen. up some red flags for me. Uh, because I, w when I started watching the film, I didn't know that it was OCD and not like autism. I, I was still seeing this as like, you know, the autistic assassin Well, but I think movie. the two are being collapsed into each other. I think that's part they are, of the issue They're too. very collated. Yeah. Uh, but here's, they're, sorry, conflated. They're very conflated. But here's the thing though. Um, having that impression in mind, when we first see him talking with Ralphie and like, playing to basically manipulate him into being healthy yes it's friendly and helpful but it's yeah. still very very sly and that betrayed a kind of social grace that i felt was directly against the kind of characterization that i was of the understanding that i would be so it was very distant and i feel like it undersells like he i don't feel like he suffers at all from this ocd that he has and that was with finger quotes for those of you not benefiting from the video feed which we don't have so for <laughs> yeah, not yet. Um, yeah, I totally agree with that. I also think, too, in the scene where he tries to predict the time of the fight and then it's off by about 16 seconds. He says it's going to be 16, turns out to be 28. Um, or that's like 12 seconds off. Bad at math. Fun. Um, he, yeah, that just kind of rolls off his back. He doesn't really... Yeah. React and I think to it could, in any way. You probably could do some really interesting stuff with, like that. So, for example, uh, let's say he goes through that fight in his 28 seconds, and then, like, you have him standing among the bodies trying to re-perform the fight and see where he screwed up. Something like that would be, like, fucked up and kind of crazy. Yeah, I, I think it just depends on where you want to go with the storyline. Like, where do you actually want to take this? There are a lot of different ideas that are going on in The Equalizer, and it depends where you see this film going like do you want this to be a portrayal of um an uh, assassin who is neurodivergent do you want this to be more focused on um him as being kind of somebody who's there for the little guy because that storyline is also there do you want this to be a story where he is motivated by the death of his wife i would submit that you would end up with john wick if you did that but i mean you could do that so i feel like there's a few different things happening in the equalizer yeah no and like it's good and the other thing though is just the sprinkler scene at the end is so fucking cheesy holy shit it's cheesy but i i liked it i didn't like the the boat explosion and i can't explain to you why i like this cheesy ass like sprinkler scene um and i also well, it's felt rain like it's a, it's a gunfight in the rain 
Yeah, it is. Uh, so I think I liked it because I was intrigued by it visually, not because I, I didn't really like what was going on with the characters. In fact, I felt that Martin Chokash's death was actually really anticlimactic, which he's supposed to be so bad and scary. Like, what happened? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No. And uh, one more thing, and this is going back to this movie actually having plot holes, not in the sense of what people usually talk about when they talk about plot holes is like, why didn't you just do that? Like, if you thought of this specific thing that I think of now that I've had time to reflect on it, you could have avoided these problems. But like, Ralphie has a gun. First of all, first of all, who the fuck gives someone a promotion after they walk off? First of all, first of all. Second of all, who gives the security guard at Lowe's a gun? Third, they took him hostage. They bound his hands and they didn't frisk him for weapons. You know, the, I feel like for that third act, the the bad guys are just kind of incompetent. They're stormtroopers. They're they're not even good henchmen, which also bugs me too. Except for Beardy. Beardy's great. Okay. Beardy actually had tricker discipline. Beardy is amazing. Um, Mr. Mustache is somebody that all our listeners will know. Should you choose to watch The Equalizer, you will know when you have seen Mr. Mustache. Because Mr. Mustache is also in John Wick. And in a couple other action movies that came also, out. Also, I year. have a question for you because yeah. I I I've only seen this the once, and I don't have the. But, uh, Mister, see now I'm calling him Mister Mustache. I much preferred Beardy. We're sorry, so Mister Mustache. His face gets dragged through some broken glass. Yes. You know, in the struggle for the night. Yep. Now my question was, was that him being pushed through glass, or was that him crawling through glass with Denzel Washington on top of him? Because. I get the kind of sense that he he was the Terminator of this movie. You know, you've always got one big bad guy who takes yeah. more shots to go down than anyone else. Yeah. And I sensed that, like, and I think it was a cool vibe that I got, and I could be mistaken about this, but that he dragged himself through that and caused that pain in order to try and get advantage in reaching for a weapon or something. Was that the case, or do you think it was just I kind of I thought in that the was the case, too. I thought that that guy was that level of badass that he would try yeah. and do that yeah, so, so that was cool. yeah yeah i mean this was a fun movie it's just it kind of falls apart in the third act and it's kind it of does. fun to talk about in that kind of like you know high school college talking about plot holes kind of way mm-hmm. but it's 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 a it's a fun one to discuss yeah. Because there's a lot of elements that kind of play into each other. And also, actually, another thing. One thing I thought was really clever in this film was the off-screen violence. Because there was a lot of things that were implied. There's a lot more... And I think that's probably why I think it's so strong that I have the sense that he and the girl didn't really know each other. Is because in every other part of the movie, they show the passage of time very well. You show him pick up a hammer, go out. You show uh, the ring show back up. You have this passage of time in these montages and this implication of greater events beyond the screen. And you don't have that in that section. But there's some great stuff where, you know, he takes he picks up the hammer, he goes out, and then, oh, a bunch of gangsters got blood up, the ring showed up, and you see him wiping off the hammer and placing it back. Also, didn't someone do that in Dexter? I think yes. someone did. Yes. You know, using tool using murder weapons from a hardware store and then putting them back and selling them to people. Uh, speaking of which, though, uh, I just wanted to say this one because I thought of this while watching the film. And like David Arbor is like a chunkier, friendlier, ver- fr- a chunkier, friendlier version of Michael C. Hall, and he's lovely. He is like, yeah, 
for a really corrupt cop in this that moment where he was like, I was a good cop once. I was kind of like, oh, sweetie, I'm sure that you really do believe that. Like, yeah. he was just kind and of adorable. This, this will be kind of fun, because I think this will be a nice footnote for his career. I think it's probably one of his last bit parts, because you yeah. know, he's really blowing up now after Stranger Things. And now he's going to be Hellboy. Yeah. Wait, he's he's Hellboy? He is Hellboy. Yeah, oh, my God. I am Hellboy. so watching Hellboy. Like, uh, yeah. Okay, I, 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 I've, I've thrown away all my misgivings. As much as I want okay. Toro to have Hellboy back... I've I seen am... some of the shots. He looks good in the makeup, so we're okay. ready, David. I am so down. So yeah, um, if you want to, I so I'd say you know for this film, this is a fun film to watch. If oh, you yeah. want something that, if you want something that's sublime, go watch John Wick instead. But 100%. this is still a fun one, and also yeah. Denzel Washington is very good. He's oh, charismatic. He's, he's fun just to watch. Great in this, and you know, David Arbor, Hellboy, fuck yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay, so this has been the Movie Morgue. I've been Sylvia Armour. You guys can follow me on Twitter at DoubleDocMD. And I've been Annie Neller. And as always, you all can find me on Instagram at, at Lights and Music. Our music, as always, is Troubled by Ipso Factibus. There's a link to the Bandcamp in the description. Uh, please make sure to follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Smoke Signal, whatever it means. We've got a bunch of links, SoundCloud. We do. And please... Tell people about us. Share us, like us, subscribe, give us a rating and review on Facebook. Every little bit helps, and the more people hear about it, the more cool stuff we can do. And if you think we're actually worth our salt, you know, maybe go have a look at our Patreon. Uh, you know, we'd love to be able to do more of this stuff, do bonus content, and do more movies. So, hey, maybe that's a thing. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.